late. Missy and I kept talking, and I didn't realize how late it had gotten. You missed a very dull TV show about Auschwitz. More gruesome film clips, and more puzzled intellectuals declaring their mystification over the systematic murder of millions. The reason why they can never answer the question, how could it possibly happen, is that it's the wrong question. Given what people are, the question is, why doesn't it happen more often? Of course it does, in subtler forms. I have a little headache from this weather. Oh. It's been ages since I sat in front of the TV, just changing channels to find something. You see, the whole culture, Nazis, deodorant salesmen, wrestlers, beauty contests, the talk shop. Can you imagine the level of a mind that watches wrestling? This is Cassidy, and this would be Cassidy's Live, episode 29, in which we return back to the wacky, wonderful world of professional wrestling. This week, I'm talking about a loving handful of my favorite pro wrestlers. As the background image slash thumbnail might suggest, I'll be talking about Ric Flair, and I'll be talking about the man they call Vader, Kazuchika Okada, probably the best in the business today, and Daniel Bryan Danielson. But that won't be all. That's not even half of them. That will be coming up a bit later, along with an interesting song of the week this week and you won't want to miss that it'll be a longer show than the previous episode we were under an hour last week that lazy 57 minute sleeper cast actually let's talk about that briefly so last week i've said it so much that it's practically meaningless now but it was my lazy episode. I feel like I completely exhausted myself creating those two Simpsons episodes. I guess you could say two and a half, give or take, Simpsons episodes. Like, uh, more than just research, more than just the really detailed editing, I'd written, like, full-blown scripts. I'd actually written full-blown scripts for those episodes. Usually, I work off of notes. They're kind of like, like paragraphs, but full of fragmented sentences. 
just information, personal tidbits or anecdotes that I'm otherwise very likely to forget, and at times some specific words or terms. The like, you know, stuff that I can elaborate more on as I go through. For the Simpsons episodes, it was more of a script. I think technically you could call it a monologue, a series of monologues, but whatever, you get me. It was a fucking script. It was a lot of effort. And the video editing on top of that, fuck me. Oh my god. I was unmotivated for actual days following that. Just procrastinating forever and ever and ever. And when my recording sessions for The Simpsons Part 3 turned out to be horrendous, I lost what little motivation I might have had. And I said, fuck it. So I phoned it in for the week. I needed to recharge. As if I were a Pokemon that had used Hyperbeam the previous turn. <laughs> Whatever, who cares? Let's talk about my week. All of you, listen up! There was one week ago, 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 one week ago. All of you, listen up! There was one week ago, one week ago, one week ago, one week ago. Thanks, Tony. Tony Schiavone, everybody. Okay, 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 okay. Calm down. Calm down. Thank you. First things first this week. And let's make a habit of it. The Victorian COVID update. As of Monday, July 26, the state of Victoria is still in lockdown. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is not missing in action. In fact, he issued an apology for the slow vaccine rollouts nationwide. But he can go get fucked regardless. In the state of Victoria, vaccinations are still being administered to persons over 40. It was 50, now it's 40. Persons in poor health and essential workers. There are 179 active cases reported statewide on July 26, and over 8 million test results collected total. There has been a net total of 3,052,491 vaccines administered, amounting to 32.9% of state citizens per 100,000 people, receiving at least one dose, and 30... 13.1% fully vaccinated, again, per 100,000 people. Outside of Victoria, New South Wales has 1,875 active cases currently. South Australia has 29, Queensland 26, and both Northern Territory and WA recorded numbers in single digits. Neither Tasmania and, amazingly, ACT have recorded any active cases. 
Cassidy would suggest that the Prime Minister apologize with actions instead of with words. This country needs to be vaccinated. Protesters need to be condemned by the supposed leader of this country. Do your fucking job. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does the Prime Minister still say that vaccinating all Australians, including aged care residents and workers, is, to quote him, not a race? The Prime Minister has the call. Well, thank you, Mr Speaker. I thank the member for the question. Uh, the reference to not a race, Mr Speaker, was first said by the uh, Secretary of the Department of Health, Mr Speaker. Let me tell you a story. Just the other day, I was buying tobacco and somebody heard me speak and asked if my accent is Canadian. Then they immediately remarked that I am a tall lady. And does my voice sound Canadian? I, does it? I don't think it does. <laughs> I'm still trying to find my voice. I just hope it's not Canadian because I want to sound Australian. I'm not Canadian. <laughs> I just, I think it's funny that I guess at least I pass as a tall Canadian woman. I guess that's something, right? That's something. Okay, so I guess editor's note here. In the process of editing, Lord has announced her new album. It's titled Solar Power and it's coming out on August 20th. I am not going to talk about it next week. I'm not going to waste a lot of time next week. So I just wanted to address it here. Just acknowledge my stance, <laughs> my general stance on this record. I am pro Lloyd releasing this album. I fucking love Lloyd. I am so excited for this. Fuck yes. And now back to our previously recorded material. AEW Fighter Fast Night 2. And here I am with an update after all. That Britt Baker versus Nyla Rose match, it wasn't so good. It wasn't a train wreck or anything, but the match just wasn't too good. What was good though? The main event, Lance Archer versus John Moxley in a Texas death match. This was utterly ridiculous. These guys fucking killed each other. It was ugly. It was garbage. It was an incredible main event. Lance Archer got the surprise win in his hometown, awesome for Lance. Notably, Mox was not pinned. We can guess that he'll be taking some time off. He's a new dad. You know, he's, he's definitely taking some time off. But whenever he's back, Moxley has an out clause. He was not pinned. Rematch in the future, I hope. And honestly, I have nothing else to say this week. So let's talk more wrestling, shall we? Alright then, let's just get into it, you bunch of marks. <laughs> you bunch of marks. Let's talk pro wrestling. It's a topic that I've covered extensively here on Cassidy is Alive, 
and I will continue to cover it often as we move forward. I love professional wrestling. It is a huge part of my life. And I feel like over the course of 28 past episodes, plus one lazy Sunday, I've explained what fascinates and interests me about pro wrestling. And to a lesser degree, the culture surrounding pro wrestling. But I've never actually explained what I like in pro wrestling. Because it's to my belief that even the casual fan, I'm sure, is aware that wrestling is an art of 31 proverbial flavors. It's not all the same. And we all play the game of favorites. So I figured that the best place to start with that whole thing is just to talk about who I like in wrestling. Don't think of this as like a top 10 list or anything like that, because it's not. This is just a mostly random assortment of professional wrestlers, both past and present, that I'd like to talk about. There are going to be some of my all-time favorites that I do not talk about. For instance, I love Macho Man Randy Savage. Who the fuck doesn't love this guy? He's like all-time top 10 favorites ever to me. <laughs> all-time ever, I guess. That's how much I like Macho Man Randy Savage. But I have absolutely nothing really to say about much today. So these are just some pro wrestlers that I like. And I can think of no place better to sides than with Big Van Vader. Born Leon Allen White on 14th of May 1955 in California, the career of the man that they would call Vader began in 1985 and spanned for over four decades. In his time, he worked for almost every major wrestling company in North America, Japan, and Europe, and he held a total of 13 world championships. Though he never officially retired, Vader worked his last match in 2017, roughly 13 months before his death the following year, at the age of 63. Vader was widely regarded as the greatest super heavyweight or big man wrestler in the history of the industry. He stood at an imposing 6 foot 5 inches and weighed 450 pounds, which is around 200 kilograms. Though he was impressively, and I mean seriously, impressively agile for a man of Vader's size, one of his trademark moves was a diving moonsault. It's like a backflip off the top rope, just in case you didn't know. Which, I mean, at the time, this was a rare thing to see altogether, let alone from a monster such as Vader. 
he also worked very stiff. Vader was known to not pull his punches and to really, really lay in those strikes. His size was certainly to his benefit in that regard, among several others. Everything that Vader did was complemented so much by his beastly form. His strikes and favoured moves like power bombs always looked super devastating. I would be remiss to ignore his finishing move, the sling sh oh my god, the sling shot splash. A body press from the middle rope, flattening a prone opponent. It was always an incredible visual. In modern times, this is actually somewhat of a common spot, and we call it the Vader Bomb. Another thing that I loved about Vader was how he would sell himself as an immovable object. It was hard to get Vader off of his feet. Now, that, that is an old wrestling trope. The large wrestler that doesn't go down easy. But Vader, he had a unique spin on this. Once he hit the mat just one time, he was no longer an immovable object. This gave Vader matches a very satisfying, very exciting, natural crescendo. A Vader match could start off slow and plotting and deliberate, with Vader on offense and his opponent slowly taking spots of hope, working the big man down. And when Vader would take that first bump, the crowd would explode and everything would pick up to build towards the climax. Vader, oh my god, the man was such a fucking good worker. But what if his actual career... Surely this Leon Vader White, with his 13 World Championships, had a career of equal notes, one that I might recount with just as much enthusiasm. And yes, Vader most certainly did. He first gained national attention in 1986 in Vern Gagne's AWA, where he worked under the ring name Bull Power. All in all, early AWA, his early AWA run, it really wasn't much to speak of. And there really isn't much footage of it out there to begin with. Though it has been said by a number of sources that the young Vader, or then Bull Power, learned pro wrestling with remarkable speed and he improved immensely in his short time with the AWA. His first international exposure came the following year in the German group Catch Wrestling Association, promoted by industry legend Otto Vans. It was in the CWA that Vader won his first world title, as he ended the nine-year title reign of Otto Vans in just ten months following his debut. Needless to say, Promoters saw money in Leon White very early into his career. One of those promoters was Antonio Inoki, a mainstream, almost godlike figure in Japan. 
I mean, it would be an understatement to call Antonio Inoki Japan's most popular wrestler. He was like Japan's most popular person, pretty much. So he took notice of Bull Power's exploits in Europe, and he brought him into New Japan Pro Wrestling in 1987, repackaged as Big Van Vader, a villainous invader with a name and aesthetic based on a notorious warlord of Japanese folklore. Vader's initial run in Japan is fucking legendary. He walked into the sumo hall and broke the decades-long undefeated streak of Antonio Inoki. But he didn't just beat Inoki. Big Van Vader, he destroyed Inoki. It was designed to shock and to establish a supervillain. And it did both of those things, and then some. The Tokyo fans were so upset by Inoki's defeat at the hands of an invading monster that a riot, an actual riot, broke out in Sumo Hall. It resulted in New Japan being temporarily banned from the building. This was what they call nuclear heat, when fans are so agitated that they react with actions instead of words. It's an event that has gone down in the annals of wrestling history. Veda was big in Japan. In 1989, he became the first non-native wrestler to hold the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, a title that he would go on to hold an additional two times during his New Japan run. In 1990, Stan Hansen legitimately popped Veda's eye out of its socket during a match, in what is still to this day among the most gruesome things that I have ever seen in professional wrestling. Vader's Japanese success attracted the attention of the Turner-owned WCW, and throughout the early to mid-90s, Big Van Vader would work as an American television wrestler. Now, Vader in WCW didn't quite work as well as he did in Japan, but his WCW run was also pretty damn good. It was fucking great. It was just a bit lesser. It wasn't as good as it was in Japan, but it was still fucking great. He was quickly given the WCW World Heavyweight title and pushed as that same dominant monster, if a little subdued. The match with Ric Flair at 1993's Starcade, where he actually lost the belts, is the peak of his run, in my opinion. An excellent wrestling match that I highly recommend. Following WCW, Vader returned to Japan, and he spent little under three years working for the shoot-style promotion UWFI, under perhaps the greatest ring name of all time, Super Vader. 
Super Vader. I fucking love it. This is an often overlooked and criminally, criminally underappreciated part of Vader's career. During this time, he had some of his best matches, many of them with Nobuhiko Takata. Go look for that series of matches if you've not seen them. Just incredible. And then came Vader in WWL. <laughs> Vader somehow never really clicked in WWF the so-called Land of Giants. It's not like he wasn't pushed, either. Vader may not have touched gold in WWF, but he did main events a number of pay-per-views, and he did draw houses. He was just... fucking goofy. Vince McMahon somehow couldn't work out how to book Vader. I, I don't know why nobody really does, it, it's a fucking mystery. <laughs> Vader made his WWF debut in early 1996, and by mid-1997, he had already been reduced to legitimate jobber status. Vader's WWF run was brief, and it was the lowest point of his entire career. Best left forgotten and spoken of rarely. He could still go out and be Vader in 1996. They just kind of, they never got, Vince never got Leon and Leon never got Vince. Leon was something of a, he would fixate on things and they would, he would beat him into the ground. Or when you mentioned Leon's name to Vince, Vince would roll his eyes. And then Michaels didn't like to work with Leon because Leon was jerking him around because that was Leon's gimmick. And it just, it didn't, it, he was, he was a real beast in a land of fucking, at that, at that time, you know, fucking real make-believe. Vader spent the remainder of his full-time career in Japan, where he worked for All Japan Pro Wrestling and later Pro Wrestling Noah. He was consistently good, albeit gradually slowing down as the years progressed and his waistband expanded. Vader entered quasi-retirement in 2004, making sporadic appearances on both an independent and far less often grander stage for what would be the last 14 years of his life. He even wrestled a far less grizzled, far more flippy Will Ospreay in August 2016, where, naturally, Vader won. Leon Big Van Bull Power Vader White is a legend of pro wrestling, one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, always. But this is not the Vader show. We've got plenty more wrestlers to talk about, so let's move on to my favorite wrestler in the world today. Coincidentally, also the best wrestler in the world today, the Rainmaker, Kazuchika Okada, the face of New Japan Pro Wrestling, and the most popular wrestler on a mainstream level in Japan right now. Okada-san has been widely regarded as among the greatest workers in the history of the wrestling industry, being deemed the best wrestler that I've seen by the likes of journalist Brian Alvarez. 
Okada-san was trained in his early teens by masked junior heavyweight wrestling legend Ultimo Dragon, beginning his career at age 16 in Mexico. He found his way to New Japan in his early 20s, where he was taken into the dojo as a young boy. He spent two years learning the business before being sent on his ill-fated excursion to TNA. Let this thing go a little far here, but I took his boot off the knees there. Now you can see the poke kind of... Okato. He was the useless sidekick of Samoa Joe. While many famous Japanese wrestlers have historically come into their own during an overseas excursion, Okada was not one of them. His brief 2010 through 2011 TNA run is not remembered fondly, if it is even remembered at all. He was a foreign guy on the roster who barely wrestled or did much of anything. But Okada returned to New Japan Pro Wrestling in January of 2012, repackaged as the Rainmaker. And he was an immediate success. Okada defeated Hiroshi Tanahashi just one month into his run, winning the IWGP heavyweight title. A huge push straight away. Okada was thrust into the mainstream scene, the mainstream, the main event scene, and with intent to build the company completely around him. New Japan, at this point, were in a process of rebuilding. With Tanahashi as the face of the company, New Japan had been kept out of the financial red, though they had grown very little. Under new ownership of the trading card giant Bushi Road, the key to growth was deemed to be marketing wrestling at the younger demographic. And the then 24-year-old Kazuchika Okada, a tall, handsome, charismatic, promising young talent, was their chosen one. And as it turns out, he was actually the perfect person to lead New Japan into the future. Kazuchika Okada delivered in the ring right away. He was fucking incredible, with an ability to highlight the strengths of an opponent and to adapt to their pace and general structure of their kind of match. And he was also very resilient, with another really amazing ability to work like a 30-minute epic and seemingly never get tired or make a single mistake. And Okada, he also had a knack for putting together these intense, drawn-out, and intelligent finishing stretches for his matches. These were Okada's strengths as a wrestler. And as the years progressed, he only got better. He became more adaptable. He got better conditioned, and he just became so fucking charismatic. But Okada... He hadn't just delivered in ring. He drew almost immediately. By his second world title run in 2013, New Japan Pro Wrestling had seen a substantial increase in ticket and merchandise sales, including its most international interest in many, many years. I discovered New Japan 
a few years prior to this, but it was definitely around this point that I became a huge fan of the company. It was around here that I began to describe New Japan Pro Wrestling as my favorite wrestling promotion. Now, obviously, the New Japan boom period of the 2010s can't be attributed to Kazuchika Okada alone, but he was absolutely the key piece. New Japan Pro Wrestling saw its largest period of financial growth in company history in 2017, a year that saw Okada carry the IWGP heavyweight title from January 1st to December 31st. It was during his record-setting, I think it was 720-day yeah, title reign. And that is perhaps the greatest title run that I have seen. It's the greatest title run this century. It, it has to be, right? It, it just has to be. I was fortunate enough to see Okada live twice during that reign. Once for Melbourne City Wrestling, where he wrestled Slacks, and a six-man tag at Melbourne's Festival Hall during New Japan Pro Wrestling's first Australian tour. So, I guess, why do I like Okada? I've explained his value to the industry and the general consensus of Okada as a worker. But why is Kazuchika Okada Cassidy's favorite wrestler? There's a certain, I suppose, you'd call it a phenomenon in pro wrestling. It's a piece of the culture. Everybody from each generation has what they call their world champion. It's the image of a wrestler that comes to mind when they hear the term World Heavyweight Champion. Legends like Bruno Sammartino, Ric Flair, Buddy Rogers, Antonio Inoki, Harley Race, list goes on. Kazushika Okada is my World Champion. He is the wrestler of my generation. Without doubt, this man was wrestler of the decade throughout the 2010s. And being only 33 years old as I record this, he could likely be the wrestler of the decade for the 2020s too. By the time that Okada retires, I'm likely going to be calling him my all-time favorite wrestler. To close this section, he's the man himself shouting Scooby Dooby Doo. <laughs> This is Mayu Iwatani. She's a 28-year-old wrestler from Yamaguchi, Japan. Following troubled teenage years, poor mental health, and self-isolation, she moved to Tokyo to pursue her dream of becoming a professional wrestler. Mayu debuted for the Sardom promotion in 2011, where she has since spent almost all of her 10-year career, becoming one of the most decorated women in the company's history. Mayu is a wrestler that I've watched grow from promising young talent to two-time world champion and the wrestler that I named Wrestler of the Year 2020. And we're the same age. Kind of a slight kinship happening, you know what I mean? 
Maggie Luatani is incredible. She is a spectacular athlete and brilliant, I mean brilliant technical wrestler. But more over than either of those, she is an exceptional storyteller. Maggie has a way of drawing sympathy while still somehow maintaining the aura of a badass. A socially awkward badass. Mayu Watani is a great wrestler. She's an absolute superstar. I don't know if I have a number two favorite wrestler in the world after Okada, but Mayu would be in that conversation for sure. Let's travel back now to the 1980s into the heyday of American tag team wrestling. One of my favorite tag teams of all time is the Rock and Roll Express. Ricky Martin and Robert Gibson. Nine-time NWA World Tag Team Champions, innovators of babyface psychology and the hot tag, and I would argue the greatest tag team in the history of professional wrestling. For their time and place, the Rock and Rolls were considered high flyers, risk takers, and they were very fast-paced workers, kind of like the Young Bucks or the Motor City Machine Guns of their day. They worked what you might describe as a crowd-pleasing style, particularly favoring the babyface comeback. Often, they worked matches where Ricky Martin was taking the offense on his back, selling, 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 while Robert Gibson stood on the apron, cheering him on, awaiting what's known as the hot tag. And as those popular baby faces made their comeback, and the fresh man was tagged in, the live crowds would fucking explode. Like, it was insanity. These guys were so fucking popular in the 1980s. But of course, you can't talk about the Rock and Roll Express without mentioning their legendary feud with the Midnight Express. The team of Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry in Mid-South, and later Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, later for WCW and for Crockett's, along with their manager, Jim Cornette's. And what can be said about this rivalry? It has come to define both teams. The best of it was definitely the stuff in Mid-South, uh, 85, 84 in particular. There's a match from the Houston Coliseum in May 1984, I believe it was May, and that's the one you should definitely go check out. It's on YouTube, so you shouldn't have much trouble finding it. The Rock and Rolls are still working today. They can't move at all like they used to, but they've lost none of that psychology. Ricky Martin, in particular, is still pretty fucking great in that ring. A dream match of mine right now is the Rock and Roll Express versus FTR. Give those guys 10 minutes of AEW time, please. Just give them some TV time, 
please, oh my god, that would be fucking amazing. Last one, before the break. This is Asuka. She's also known as Veni. She's a non-binary Joshi from Yokohama, using female and neutral pronouns. I will be using female pronouns. Asuka was trained by Joshi legend Ayako Hamada and made her debut in 2015 at the age of 16. She spent her career working for independent women's pro wrestling companies in Japan, notably Pro Wrestling Wave and Seedling, having held the top titles for both promotions. Asuka has been noted as a particularly skilled young wrestler with a very promising future. But what I'd like to talk about, rather than her skill as a worker, and believe me, she is very entertaining. What I'd like to talk about though are the barriers that she has broken for trans wrestlers in Japan. While yes, there has been minor criticism, mostly in the form of older promoters such as Stardom's Rossi Agawa refusing to book her, Asuka has been largely accepted and celebrated by the wrestling community and the fan base in Japan. She's a popular wrestler in her niche, and a 2021 booking with AEW has shown some international intrigue. Asuka is a wrestler that means a lot to me on a personal level. I'm so happy that her future looks so bright, and I just want to see her flourish and succeed. Alright guys, it is time. The song of the week. As I said, it's an interesting one this episode. So this week, we'll be listening to a song by pro wrestling's living legend, Terry Funk. Yeah, that's right. The Funker had a music career in Japan. This is from his 1984 album, Great Texan. This is Terry Funk. With by with, I'm sorry. This is Terry Fung with Barbara Streisand's nerves. We'll be back soon.
あなたヒロシたちはねプロレス始めたみたいいやー5人の敵をマットにはわせリングの間をプーマを引きずり出せ大技小技場外乱闘に狂気攻撃まで飛び出して気分はすっかりリングサイド今度はプロレス私は誰の挑戦でも受けるやればやるほどディスクシステム And Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Again, please. Again? Again. Art thou bored? Yeah. Step into a Slim Jim. <laughs> Turn to the spice. That baby juicy taste. Need a little excitement? Step into a Slim Jim. The fully IBM compatible Head Start computer versus King Kong Bundy. Bundy has never used a computer before. He's sitting down. Wait a minute. The on-screen instructions are so simple he doesn't have to wrestle with a manual. Bundy's punching his way through the incredible variety of programs. In just 23 minutes, he's entered the world of computers. Head Start by Bendix. It will bring out the genius in you. And we're back. Let's waste no time and just dive right back into it. The next wrestler that I'd like to talk about is Nick Bockwinkle. I know it's a bit of a ridiculous name. If you've never heard it before, just try your best to ignore it. One of wrestling's great world champions, Nick Bockwinkle, debuted in 1954. He spent the first half of his 34-year career as a babyface, working primarily in California and Hawaii to marginal levels of success. Little footage is known to exist of this young journeyman, Nick Bockwinkle, with more or less limited to small clips from his brief stints in Texas and in the Pacific Northwest. In 1970, Bock joined Vern Gagne's AWA, and this is where he would have his greatest success. He quickly rose to prominence as a sophisticated heel upperclassman character, eventually accompanied by manager Bobby Heenan. The duo of Bach and Heenan is otherworldly. Together, they made magic. Well, I have to respect my intelligence because I predicted that one of the smaller men, not that 240 pounds is small, would come out the victor in the battle royal. Now, Mad Dog Vashon, you stand up here and you epitomize the lowest elements of humanity. You talk about coming out of garbage cans and you've got something to be thankful and grateful on this day. And this is the opportunity of your lifetime. I want you to know something. I am very grateful, but then I worked very hard for what I have. I've maintained it. I've represented the heavyweight championship of the world with the class and the dignity that it deserves. Now, there's one thing about the human animal. If it has class, it has it. If it doesn't, you cannot give it to them. And as far as you are concerned, you cannot come to my level of class and sophistication. You cannot come to my wrestling ability. But I can see that the human animal has always been able to go down the ladder, back, retrogress, into the gutter. And I hate to say it, but on Thanksgiving Day, I guess that's exactly where we're going to have to go. 
and see what kind of bones and carcass is going to be left over because we're going to have to scrap and kick and bite and scratch. I, the heavyweight champion of the world, the most sophisticated and respected athlete in our sport, will have to for one day get down at your level. and It'll be a very denigrating day, but I have every intention of coming out of this the heavyweight champion of the world. You know, Nick Bockwinkel, it's just possibly conceivable that all of us on Thanksgiving have a lot to be thankful for. Past, present, and future. Well, I'm going to change the course of history. Thanksgiving night, we're not going to have turkey. We're going to have dog. And you know how you prepare dog? Well, you don't put cranberries to it. You don't put stuffings to it. You put the boots to it. So when the dog's down there on the mat, and he's getting his teeth kicked out, both of them, and he's rolling around in pain, he's going to know he's in the ring with the heavyweight champion of the world. Now for the question of the day. How's the Vikings going to blow it today, huh? <laughs> Figure that one out. The same as Vashon. They're outclassed. Nick Bockwinkel held the AWA World Heavyweight Championship four times. His longest reign between 1975 and 1980 lasted 1,714 days. His identity as a wrestler is very much linked to the AWA world title. And along with Vern Gagne himself, he is the wrestler most associated with the belts. Nick Bockwinkle is recognized as a master of wrestling psychology. And coupled with remarkable technical wrestling ability, Bock is considered one of the best wrestlers of his generation. I would argue one of the best wrestlers of any generation. I love his work with Rick Martel, Vern Gagne, and Kurt Hennig in AWA. Some all-time classics there. I would highly recommend Rick Martel because those matches, they're just, they're not spoken of quite as much as Bock versus Vern or Bock versus Hennig. And I, I would argue Bock versus Martel, those matches are generally even better. He also had this insanely good match in the early 1980s in Houston with a young Tito Santana. That would be one of my, one of my favorite Bach matches. Bockwinkle may also be my favorite promo in all of wrestling. He had this smooth, articulate delivery and holier-than-thou attitude that seriously made for some incredible, timeless wrestling interviews. In the years following his 2015 death, Nick Bockwinkle has become a subject of study and of much appreciation. A generation of younger wrestling fans, myself included of course, have taken interest in the career of Nick Bockwinkle, and many of them, again myself included, recognize Vok as among the all-time greats of professional wrestling. And he seriously, seriously is. Nick Bockwinkle is one of the absolute best. I love this man. But who is Cassidy's all-time favorite wrestler? Mick Foley. Mick Foley. Which, you know, that may be a little surprising, you know, uh, my favorite wrestler of all time is a man most well known for his WWE run. Well, I don't know what to say. 
I fucking love McFoley. Everything about him. His matches were brutal and excessive, but so fucking entertaining. His promos were a literal work of art every single time. And I especially love how Mick Foley was a wrestler and a writer. Plus, he said this one thing in that shitty documentary, Beyond the Mats. He says, I want to be the most polite wrestler. How the fuck can you not love Mick Foley? Everybody loves Mick Foley, even people that don't like wrestling. See him get thrown off the fucking cage and just uh, respect him because they acknowledge you can't fake that. I mean, I, I could say so much about Mick Foley, but so much has already been said about Mick Foley. I don't know what I could possibly add. So instead, instead of talking about my all-time favorite wrestler, Let's talk about my all-time favorite wrestler to watch. My favorite in-ring worker. So that would be Manami Toyota. Manami Toyota was a very popular Joshi wrestler in 1990s Japan. She was a frequent main eventer and multiple-time world champion in all Japan women's. My favorite wrestling promotion ever. Moreover than that, Manami's legacy is in how she influenced the modern style of wrestling. While she was a quieter influence than the likes of Eddie Guerrero or Chris Benoit or Kurt Angle, she was every bit as instrumental to the development of the modern style as they were. Manami was very similar to Will Ospreay circa 2021. She was spectacular. She could do incredible fucking things. She had a repertoire of impressive, impressive wrestling moves, but it was always sensible with a focus on realistic psychology. Manami was also the queen of reversals. She was like an encyclopedia on countering offense, with seemingly a counter to fucking everything. So, so ahead of her time was Manami Toyota. I first discovered her, as well as the AJW promotion, in my late teens, but I truly became enamored by my early 20s. After watching her 1995 match with Mima Shimoda, which is my second favorite match of all time. More footage of Manami Toyota is constantly being uncovered and published online. So with each year comes more than a few new Manami Toyota matches that I have never seen before and she still manages to impress me. If this is a wrestler that you've never watched work, I cannot recommend it highly enough. You will not be disappointed, I assure you. So, now, now it's time that we talk about Ric Flair. You'd have a tough time just as any other intelligent human being that have a tough time not having respect for the world's heavyweight wrestling champion. Whether you like it or not, 
I'm what's happening. Woo! And professional wrestling. The greatest of all time. Full stop. What the hell am I supposed to say about Ric Flair? By WWE's count, he's a 16-time world champion. By his own count, the number is 21. He was the centerpiece of Jim Crockett promotions and was arguably the walking definition of the term world heavyweight champion. My earliest memories of Ric Flair are actually him as the old guy in late WCW. It wasn't until my early teens that I went back and watched Ric Flair in his prime. And it was really through Ric Flair that I gained the absurd appreciation for wrestling as an art that I have today. My first exposure to the classic 1989 trilogy with Ricky Steamboat basically changed how I thought about pro wrestling. It was the first time that I ever associated the idea of crowd reaction with what was happening in the ring. I took note of psychology, and wrestling from there became an art to me. I became obsessed with wrestling as it exists as an art, as opposed to this little child mark that bought into everything. <laughs> Ric Flair was so prolific in his prime that I am still watching stuff from him that I have not seen before. Constantly learning and appreciating more and more that Ric Flair was legitimately the greatest wrestler of all time. I mean, honestly, as far as modern pro wrestling, I mean, it's hard to compare Ric Flair to the pioneers, you know, like Frank Gotch. Ed Lewis, uh, Stanislaw Sabisco. It's hard to compare Ric Flair to those guys. It, wrestling was very different. So you can say wrestling took modern shape in, we'll just say the 1940s. By then, gimmicks were in. Everything was a work. Mostly everything was a work. And between now and then, Ric Flair was the best to ever do it. Full stop. Charlie Evans is a 24-year-old wrestler from New South Wales in Australia. She is one of my favorite wrestlers from my home country. She debuted in 2014 and has worked all over the world in her young, grizzled career. Her style is rather crowd-pleasing. She's a short, thick girl that moves fast, strikes particularly stiff, and takes a lot of scary bumps. I saw Charlie Evans maybe once, maybe a few times, none of them recently at all. She's a different wrestler these days. She has improved significantly since I last saw her live, and I am very much looking forward to a post-pandemic world where I might see her in person again. Charlie Evans is, in my opinion, the most underrated wrestler in the world today, and she is somebody to keep your eye on. It is only a matter of time before she is working with a major company. I want to talk briefly on wrestling's greatest female pioneer, Mildred Burke. Burke's career began in 1935 
wrestling men in both worked and shoot matches, reportedly only ever losing one match. She was married to a man named Billy Wolf, and together they trained, promoted, and managed some early instances of women's professional wrestling in the United States. In January 1937, Mildred Burke defeated Clara Mortensen to be recognized as the first ever women's world wrestling champion, a title that she held and defended for 15 years. Over 15 years, actually. She was the face of women's wrestling, managing a troupe of some 27 traveling wrestlers, and by far the most powerful influence, one of the most powerful influences on the industry. But there was a falling out. Mildred Burke separated from Billy Wolf in 1952, and fellow NWA promoters would side with her ex-husband. She lost the women's world title to June Byers in an infamous double cross. The referee, local promoter, and June Byers had conspired with Billy Wolf and the NWA to take the belt from Burke. Following this incident, Mildred Burke established a number of organizations around the world, including International Women's Wrestlers Incorporated, which had offices and dojos in New York, Los Angeles, and Sydney. She also established the 3WA, that's the Worldwide Women's Wrestling Association, and long story short, that was a Japanese dojo that served as the basis for all Japan women's. Mildred Burke did what the NWA never really cared to so much as attempt. She spread women's pro wrestling across North America and internationally, bringing it to places like Mexico, Australia, Asia, Great Britain, all over the place. And it was taken seriously, as seriously as women wrestling could be taken given the time period. <laughs> Though sadly, there is very little footage of Mildred Burke. I love the story of this woman's career. I love what she did for pro wrestling in of itself. One of the greatest influences and doubtless one of the greatest pioneers of professional wrestling in general. She wasn't the first women's wrestler, but Mildred, Mildred Burke was the greatest women's wrestler. No one will ever be able to compare or contribute anywhere near as much as Mildred Burke did. Mildred Burke is quite literally the mother of women's professional wrestling. I love Mildred Burke. My favorite wrestler growing up was definitely Brian Danielson. Brian was out of this world good during his Ring of Honor run. 
he was a mainstay for the company until 2009 when he signed a contract with WWE. He was universally considered one of the founding fathers of ROH. He was seriously on a level above everybody else. He was crisper, he worked smarter, his matches were always just a little better. While everybody else on the independents were working towards it, Brian Danielson was already complete. I forget who it was, maybe Dave Meltzer, described Daniel Bryan, of Brian Danielson, when he signed with WWE as the best wrestler in the world before he has ever worked for the biggest company. I mean, he consistently innovated, and he would raise the bar with each of his big matches. His series with Nigel McGuinness that spanned the course of several years is to this day one of my favorite rivalries in professional wrestling. And of course, there is his 30-plus minute epic with Kenta at Glory by Honor 2006 and... Oh my god, one of the greatest matches that I've ever seen in my life. He also co-starred in the documentary film Wrestling Road Diaries, along with Cole Cabana. And this showed me, Brian Danielson, as a person. He's basically a chill hippie that loves music and wrestling. And I fucking love him so much. As mentioned earlier, Brian signed a WWE contract in 2009. I wasn't actually curious enough to watch his WWE run at first. I was a moody teenager, and I would not watch WWE under any circumstances. That changed in 2011, when I was drawn back by the rise of CM Punk. Hey, Colt Cabana, how you doing? Around this same time, Brian Danielson, now wrestling as Daniel Bryan, was beginning a slow start-stop push, which included an afterthought world title run. He started to gain serious traction in mid-2012, with an amazing series of matches with then-WWE champion CM Punk. This splintered off into a tag team run with Kane as the memorable, dysfunctional tag team of Team Hell No. If you remember Team Hell No, hell yes. That was really entertaining. I'm usually not into that kind of shit, but I thought it was really good. Really good television. That then splintered off into a long-term feud with The Shield. During this time, Daniel Bryan caught absolute fire with the audiences. Everybody loved this guy. There was an episode of Raw where John Cena was to name his opponent for the upcoming SummerSlam pay-per-view. And when he named Daniel Bryan, the crowd went mental. I mean, seriously, absolutely mental for this guy. It was insanity how popular this guy was. If you weren't there at the time, it's really hard to describe how popular Daniel Bryan got for a brief period of time. We'll cover why it was brief, but 
oh my god. A wrestler hasn't caught fire to quite that degree in a very long time. It's only been Daniel Bryan for just in the last like 20 years. It's insane. So, so yeah, so <laughs> he went to the pay-per-view with his new gesture. He developed this new gesture called the Yes Gesture. Basically points his fingers up in the air and says, yes, yes, yes. And it was very imitatable. And you would have periods where the entire crowd would just be going, yes, yes. Even if Daniel Ryan wasn't there. That's how much they loved him. He walks into the pay-per-view, goes to SummerSlam, and defeats John Cena, winning the WWE Championship for minutes. He gets screwed over by Triple H and defeated by Randy Orton. It's a lot of convoluted bullshit. Don't worry about it. What really matters is that Daniel Ryan got his run for mere minutes. And it only made the fans want him more. What followed this was months of Daniel Bryan being denied, being cast to the side, and his popularity in turn skyrocketing. Retroactively, WWE have claimed that this was all by design, but if you were there at the time, it clearly fucking wasn't. That is such a lie. The fans forced Vince's hand, and WWE, to their credit, actually did decide to go with Daniel Ryan rather than sticking to their guns, and it was a very good decision. They put over Daniel Bryan big time at WrestleMania 30, and it was seriously a perfect moment. My boy, our boy, Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan, working at wrestling's greatest stage, winning and holding up the WWE world title. He was the number one wrestler in the world by the metric of, you know, the biggest company, right? He's the champion of the biggest company. He's the wrestler. That's that's just how it is, right? But sadly, it didn't last long. Within just two months, injuries caught up to Daniel Bryan, and he was forced to relinquish the title. After such a struggle to get there, it was fucking devastating. Over the next two years, Bryan would be caught in a perpetual state between injury and briefly returning from injury. This was until February 2016, when Daniel Bryan announced his retirement on Monday Night Raw. It was an emotional moment for everyone, especially Bryan himself. I had to watch it live, and I'm pretty sure that that was the last WWE program that I actually watched live to air. As you'd expect, I cried like a little girl. It gets to a point where they tell you that you can't wrestle anymore. And for a long time I fought that because this, I have loved this in a way that I have never loved anything else. 
I am grateful. I am grateful because of wrestling, I got to meet the most wonderful woman in the world. <laughs> who's beautiful, she's smart, and she completes me in a way that I didn't even think was possible. And that's because of wrestling. Brian had suffered many concussions over the years. This led to some serious complications throughout his mid-30s. Brian was having a lot of seizures. He made the choice to retire for the sake of his own health, though it was very clear that Brian Danielson was not mentally ready to give up pro wrestling. Over the next few years, Brian worked with several medical doctors and neurologists. He participated in what was then experimental hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and eventually he was healthy enough to be medically cleared to wrestle. Brian made his return at WrestleMania 34 in 2018, a momentous occasion, and the first time since Brian, Daniels big, Brian Danielson's big night at WrestleMania 30 that I was actually excited about anything at a WrestleMania. By that November, he was the WWE Champion once more, and he had actually turned heel. He was now portraying a self-righteous, preachy, environmentalist character. Sure, it, it's goofy, but I actually watched a fair bit of this Brian Heel run, and it was, generally speaking, really good stuff. He had a couple of matches with AJ Styles that are worth going out of your way to see. Earlier this year, Brian main evented his second WrestleMania, and that would actually be the last noteworthy part of Brian Danielson's entire career. For now. As of May 2021, Brian Danielson is a free agent. He is no longer under WWE contract. And I cannot stress how much of a big deal that truly is. He's not retired, he'd say something if he were. And now we have unconfirmed reports that he's already signed an AEW contract. And while that does sound pretty awesome, I selfishly want slash need Brian Danielson in New Japan. Brian versus Okada is my all-time ultimate dream match, and I can slash will die happily after I see that fucking match. I don't know what move Brian Danielson will make, though I am eager to find out. Wouldn't you agree, Jumpin' Jeff Farmer? Yep. The last wrestler that I want to talk about today is Katsuyori Shibata. This guy was one of the shining stars of 2010's New Japan Pro Wrestling, and dumb bitch that I am, I realized it too late. This is the short form story of Katsuyori Shibata, the last 
real wrestler. So, Shibata first came into New Japan in late 1999. He was an amateur wrestling prodigy and a dojo standout. He actually trained in the same dojo class as Hiroshi Tanahashi and Hiroaki Goto. Shibata was earmarked for greatness right off the bat. He worked a no-bullshit semi-shoot style with extremely physical stiff leg strikes and tight submission holds. His style was favoured by the New Japan office, who saw the young wrestler as a potential future company ace. Shibata, however, chose to go his own way. There is something very, very punk rock about what Katsuyori Shibata did in the spring of 2005. He rejected the company's push, saw it as success being handed to him instead of success being earned. He abruptly left New Japan Pro Wrestling and took to the Japanese independent scene as well as mixed martial arts. Shibata honed his skills between 2005 and 2011, creating the perfect wrestler identity to define him. He returned to New Japan in 2012 as the wrestler, Katsuyori Shibata. The wrestler. He wore plain black trunks and entered the ring with zero pageantry. He was simply a wrestler, and he was the last one left. Katsuyori Shibata was the wrestler. And during this incredible five-year run, he was the hardest-hitting, most physically demanding wrestler in probably the entire world. A Shibata match really felt like a fight at the best of times. And as stated, it took a while to really click with me. I kind of liked Shibata, but I wasn't sure that I really understood him. That all changed in April 2017. What would be Katsuyori Shibata's final match, though we didn't know that walking in. He was challenging IWGP heavyweight champion Kazuchika Okada, and it was one of my favorite wrestling matches ever. It was so physical, so dramatic, to the degree that you only really get in professional wrestling. Okada and Shibata threw everything at each other, legitimately beating the other man up to tell the story. It was, oh, oh my god, it was amazing. So, at a certain point during the match, Shibata does this. That's, that right there was a legitimate headbutt. And it is hard to watch with the benefit of hindsight. After this match, 
as the adrenaline started to wane, Shibata reportedly collapsed backstage. He was rushed to a nearby hospital, where it was discovered that he had suffered a subdural hematoma. This would require immediate emergency surgery. Katsuyori Shibata was medically dead for a few minutes. A piece of his skull was removed to reduce a swelling brain. His life was saved, though he was in incredibly rough shape. He had literally killed himself for this match. He had a partialized, a partialized, a partially paralyzed body, and he was likely suffering brain damage. Doctors at the time were uncertain if Shibata could walk ever again. But you cannot stop Katsuyori Shibata. Though his wrestling career is most certainly over, Shibata was walking unassisted by the end of the month. And then, in August, he made his surprise return to New Japan for wrestling. In what was an incredibly emotional moment, Shibata hit the ring and said, I am alive. That is all. Shibata has spent the last three years as a trainer for New Japan's Los Angeles Dojo, where he is generally considered to be a very strict but excellent trainer. And that's where the story of Katsuyori Shibata ends. Pro wrestling is fake, but Katsuyori Shibata was fucking real. Well, that's the show for the week, my friends. I hope that you enjoyed hearing me gush over the fucking wrestlers that I like for over an hour. I what the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> Nonetheless, I appreciate you being with me for the week, as always. You are amazing people, and I love you all so much. Next week, how does Notorious Cults sound to you? Next week, we're going to be talking about a handful of the most infamous cults in modern history. It's going to be a fun, interesting one, and I am really looking forward to putting it together, so you'd better be looking forward to listening to it. Or whatever. You know, I don't care. <laughs> I am completely unaffected. <laughs> For now, though, I am tired. Uh, fuck, I've also got to edit this video, so I've seriously got to get the fuck out of here. Have a great week, friends. You are beautiful. Never forget that. Bye! We are dead! So we're told! The people was a people is as you've ever seen! We were told! No one likes Except for people who get it Drunk yourself That's not enough
トヨタしかしなかなか突破口開けませんねあのアジアのバックドロップはよく頭から落とすとか言うじゃん、はい、違うんだよね、ええ、あ頭からじゃないんですか首なの首の横って感じですかね、うん、斜めにね斜めに落ちてるからちょうどあの男のプロレスの反対側なんですよね、うん、なるほどね受け身のトリトリあ,、ええ、あこれもかわしてなんだなんだなんだジャパニーズジャパニーズジャパニーズオーシャンあーすげえアジャコングをジャパニーズオーシャンで投げたまだまだああ出ました出ましたあこれはねちょっと外されてしまったもうアジャがこれはもう 3WA の王者としてのね何たるかというかもう憎たらしいほど強いという部分を今日は存分に見せていますね、これね。いやだ、見るのも嫌だ。ああ、なだれ式水車落とし。あーあー、あーうーわ、うーわ、そんなヒッププレスはないぞ。今のも応用編の応用編ですよね。ああ、じゃあ、本当に強いぞ、今日のアジアは。ああ、トヨタが起き上がってきた。トヨタが起き上がってきた。なんでしょう、なんでしょう、えなんだ、なんだ。あ、これは、うわー、すげえ。ああポジション分かってますもんね、うん、でも頭の中は相当ねクラクラ来てると思うんですよねあ,あれトップロープから後頭部から落ちたと一緒でしょやられたああこれか裏剣一発あ危ないよくあそこで裏剣が出たと思うわああすごいやあ、えー、びっくりしたできるのかもう一回もう一回同じ技かもう一回同じ技かうーわああジャパニーズオーシャンサイクロンスープレックスかあ7なんとカウント3いやー横浜アリーナ横浜アリーナ大熱狂まさにスタンディングオベーション状態でやります